Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Wow, it's great to see a lot of faces out there today. And I know several of you are joining us from home, so we welcome you online this morning. In the Jewish tradition, there is a, a parting uh, word that is often said uh, between people who are parting ways, and it's called shalom. Can you say shalom? Or bang your cup on the floor there. Just kidding. Sorry, Dave. Dave's one of our board of elders, and uh, he likes to bring down the house. Just kidding. I love the guy. So, shalom. So, whenever you say goodbye, it's like saying goodbye, but instead, you're wishing well-being upon somebody else. So, this word shalom actually means peace, okay? So, when you say shalom to somebody, it could be a greeting, but more often than not, when you're parting ways, they will say shalom. Shalom means goodbye, but it also means I wish you well. I wish you good tidings. I wish your best. I wish you success in all you do. Okay? We start a new series today called Parting Peace. And we're going to be looking at some of the uh, general epistles, but more specifically Pauline epistles. When I say Pauline epistle, what does that mean? It means Paul's letters. An epistle is a letter. We have general epistles in the New Testament. We have Pauline epistles. General epistles are letters written by other people or leaders within the church. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul and Paul's letters. And so we're going to be looking today at 2 Corinthians. But we're going to be looking at the end or the closing of these letters over the next four weeks. How does Paul or some of these other writers close out their letters. When you say goodbye in a letter, how do you normally sign it? Sincerely is one, uh, goodbye. Blessings, thank you. Aloha, which means hello and goodbye, right? We're gonna be looking at some parting words. What if, and this is the big question right here that I want you to sit with for a while. What if the last words you spoke were the last words anybody ever heard? What if the last words you spoke were the last words anybody ever heard? You see, growing up as a little kid in Kentucky, as an only child, I was spoiled by my mother. But I also had this weird sensitive spot in me that was, and call it weird, it was, I was, I've been weird since birth. I came out weird. I came out with a look on my face like this. That's why the doctor slapped me, but I'm in good shape now. Doctors still slap me now. I don't know why. Anywho, let's get back on track. So I grew up with this sense of what if, and this sounds morbid, but what if it's the last time I ever see my mom or my dad or my grandmother And so whenever we would part ways, we still do this today. My grandmother, she passed away a couple years ago, but she would stand on her front porch and she would wave until we got out of sight. 
My mom does the same thing now. She was saying, and we drive down this, where she lives, she has this long driveway, and you can see her. She's still standing at the driveway doing this. And then we get on onto the main road, and the road has a long piece to go before we are completely out of sight. And you can look. I mean, you can ask my kids, right? She stands there going, <laughs> she cries every time we leave. Right, mom? Because I know she's watching. She always watches. What if the last time you saw somebody, you said words that were not words of peace and love. You see, Paul, when he's writing these letters, says some pretty hard things. In Corinthians, this church in Corinth, Paul, if you read First and Second Corinthians, it won't take you that long. It'll take you a little amount of time. But if you sit down in one setting, at least just read First Corinthians. He is laying them out, right? He is reaming them, what we would say, right? He's raking them over the coals. But he closes this letter with parting words of peace. Second Corinthians, it's the same way. He parts with words of peace. And this isn't just a pleasantry like, hey, I really think you're stupid and you're going to hell. By the way, peace to you. Goodbye. Right? It's not how he's writing these letters. He sincerely means what he says. So I, I thought it was interesting. I looked up, what are some parting words that people said or last words that people have said before they, uh, you know, breathed their last? And so here's some interesting ones. Some of them are funny. Some of them are really sad. Don't laugh at once that you shouldn't laugh at, and I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. All right, so in 2014, in her memoir, by her name is Ginger Alden, she was the fiancé of Elvis Presley. The final words she ever heard from Elvis Presley, and the only words that we know of that were his last, were the ones she heard in 1977, that fateful night. During a night of sleeplessness, Elvis told Alden, I'm going to the bathroom to read, and the rest is history. We don't know if he said anything else, but those are the last words he said to someone. I'm going to the bathroom to read. We know he overdosed. Frank Sinatra, how many of you are familiar with Frank Sinatra? A couple of you? All right, so uh, Frank Sinatra's last words, and I did look this up, I, I went, tried to find legitimate sources, but every source I found on Frank Sinatra said that his last three words were, I'm losing it. Nostradamus, you familiar with Nostradamus? If you're a nerd like me who likes history and some weird historical things, Nostradamus supposedly wrote these different types of tractates or different things that predicted the future. He actually got this one right. Because his last words were, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And that's true. Marie Antoinette, you know her? Henry VIII, I am his wife. You remember her? Yeah? I've got a horrible British accent. Marie Antoinette was beheaded by her husband. Husbands don't get ideas. It's not appropriate. But Marie Antoinette, when she was going up on the gallows to have her head chopped off by the guillotine, stepped on her executioner's foot. Or so it wasn't a guillotine, it was an axe bearer guy with a black mask and everything. She stepped on his foot, and her last words spoken before the crowd were, and let me see if I've got the French right. Pardonne-moi, pardonne-moi, monsieur. Uh, how do you say it? 
Monsieur, Monseigneur, no, Monseigneur. Pardon-moi, Monseigneur, which means, excuse me, sir. <laughs> and then she had her head chopped off. When Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, you know what her last words were? Sincerely, swing low, sweet chariot. Leonardo da Vinci, it's said on his deathbed, he said these words, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Bit of a perfectionist, wasn't he? <clears throat> oh, here's a really good one. Vladimir Lenin. Do you know who Lenin is? The great, fierce dictator of Russia. Communist Russia. The Bolshevik Revolution. You know all of this, right? Where communism took a stronghold. It's said that his last words were, and I'm going to do the Russian version of it. Vat Sobaka. Sounds really harsh, doesn't it? A dog had brought him a dead bird by his bedside, and he said, good dog. And those were his last words. I've got a couple more. Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford? Some of you are shuddering, like, ooh. Don't, it's like, what's a Mufasa? Ooh. Joan, Joan Crawford. Ooh. She said uh, to her housekeeper, she was on her deathbed. Her housekeeper, it is said, was praying for her. And, her house, and Joan Crawford yelled at her housekeeper and said, and I can't use the explicative, but she said, dang it. I put, you emphasized the other word. Dang it, don't you dare ask God to help me. Can you imagine those being your last words? Finally, how many of you have uh, Apple products? And I don't mean fruit, right? iPhones, uh, iPads, those kind of things. The founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, it said that his, and I thought this was so cool, because it makes you think maybe he had a moment of realization of faith, because his sister Mona said, that his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Paul had a rough, a rough go with the church at Corinth. He helped establish the church in Corinth. Um, this church being so deeply steeped in Hellenistic tradition or Greek tradition uh, was really steeped in what we call the philosophical side of issues. You know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And so when Paul was evangelizing these Greek regions that were dominantly uh, Greek people, uh, he really had to contend with them in the faith and help them understand that these philosophies that have some grounding in reality can oftentimes go way too far into this realm of false teaching that has nothing to do with God or nothing to do with Christ. And so many of Paul's writings to the church at Corinth were unpacking what truth really is in comparison or contrast to the Greek philosophical ideology that all of them had grown up in during that time period. So Paul spends nearly seven years corresponding with Corinth, seven years corresponding with them. It is thought that he wrote four letters to Corinth, two of them which we do not have 
actually anywhere or they would be in Scripture more than likely. But there's reference in the first and second Corinthian letters to indicate there were a couple other letters that we have no clue about. That's pretty cool to think about, right? There's another letter supposedly, which is totally off the subject, to Laodicea that we don't have reference. We have reference of it, but we don't have the actual manuscript. It'd be interesting to find out what he wrote to these places. But he begins his relationship with them around 50 to 52 AD. He spent a year and a half establishing this church in Corinth. Sometime around 55 or 56, he made a second visit, which we can read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, what he calls a painful visit. Have you ever had a painful visit meeting with somebody? Okay, so Paul has this second visit to them and it's painful. And he does this, this painful visit is to deal with the emergency disciplinary problem within the church. We do know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's really addressing sexual sin in the body of Christ at Corinth. What is sexual sin? Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Sexual sin is anything outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman. I know that's not a popular thing to say today, but I unregretfully speak that because that's what scripture tells us. Take it for what it's worth. But there was sexual immorality going on. Actually, there was a specific instance, as we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is addressing a guy who married his stepmother. Ew. <laughs> right? And uh, it was completely unwarranted. Incest was not an allowable thing, period, but especially within the church. So more than likely, what most scholars uh, uh, figure out what's going on here is that this guy's father had died and he had taken his stepmother as his wife. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there should be no hint of immorality. This is not right. Please don't do it. You need to address it. If they're not willing to correct it, you need to kick them out. Wait, they kicked people out of the church in the early church? Yes, it doesn't sound too PC, but if somebody was going to continue in this ongoing sinful lifestyle after they had been rebuked, addressed, and in love said, listen, this is not right. You need to stop. It's going to lead you to a place called hell, and we don't want you to go there. So you got to stop this. Paul was addressing that. That was his painful visit he was addressing. In about 56 or 57 AD, he came to Corinth for the third time, and he stayed for three months before taking his leave of them, and he would never return again. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from a place called Macedonia, which is in the northern region of Greece, after his second visit to Corinth to prepare the church for his third and final visit. So in between his second visit and his third visit, he writes 2 Corinthians, which I'm going to be reading from today. And here's what we know. Paul addresses, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you guys have done really good. The first letter I sent you, and after my first couple of visits with the disciplinary issue, you've addressed that, you've dealt with it, and things are going well. Good job. But he says, there's some other things that are going on. There's favoritism happening. There was a debate on who is the best speaker or who should we listen to more? Should we listen to Paul or Apollos? Who should we listen to? 
And some people say, well, we shouldn't listen to those guys. Jesus is our only, is our only authority, which, yes, is true. But they had the skewed perspective of Jesus, which had manifested in a false teaching, which had permeated the body of Christ there. Like I said, they were thoroughly encapsulated by Greek philosophy. And what was Greek philosophy under Plato? When we look at Plato's philosophy, we find this weird teaching that arises called Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism or Docetism? Well, these are big words that just means that Jesus truly wasn't God in the flesh. Because if he were God in the flesh, then he couldn't truly be God. Because in Platonic thought, it was thought that physical matter was evil. It's purely evil. So the seat you're sitting in, the flesh of your body is made out of matter or material things. And just by that very uh, significance of being matter, it means it's evil. So God could not take on human form because to take on matter would become less than God. And so this teaching started permeating the churches of that day and age. And a, a lot of the writings in the New Testament, even John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are combating this mentality. No, Jesus was God in the flesh. What he did on the cross actually made a difference to humanity. Because no other man could do that. God became a man and did that because mere humans couldn't do it. So God was fully man, and man in that context of Jesus was fully God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Did I lose you? Okay, this is really deep stuff. I'm gonna get into some other stuff here in a second, okay? So we get to this. Paul is unpacking this there as the founding pastor of Corinth. Paul was respected, but oftentimes dejected by the body of Christ there. He was respected as the founding pastor, but oftentimes dejected. We, we know based on certain things, especially in 2 Corinthians, he's not a great speaker. There was one instance where we are told that Paul is preaching and a guy is sitting on a windowsill and he falls out. Not because he lost balance, but because he fell asleep. Some of you fall asleep in my services. I get it. It happens, right? You, I know some of you are on medication. Some of you didn't get a good night's sleep. Actually, you got an extra hour last night, so you better not be falling asleep. I'm just kidding. So, but here's the thing. Paul was not a great communicator, but he truly was an apostle of God, called by God. We read about that in Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus experience. Why am I giving you all of this backstory? Because I want you to know the heart of the man who does call people out, who does call churches out for doing the wrong things, but whose heart is truly in love with them. We come to the end of the letter of 2 Corinthians, which is the only, which are the final words we have documented of Paul with the church at Corinth. And this is what he says in the very last few verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's going to be on the screen here. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. After he has called them out, after he has scolded them, yes, he's encouraged them. Listen to what he closes with. Dear brothers and sisters, I close this letter with these last words. 
be joyful, grow in maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with a sacred, or some translations say a holy kiss. All of God's people here send you their greetings. Where is he writing from? Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. So all the believers in that region send their love to you. Where, where is Corinth? Do you know Greece, so if Italy looks like a boot, right? Greece looks like an alien hand with three fingers, right? Have you seen it? A thumb and three fingers. So Corinth is right about where, where the, the wrist meets the main portion of the whole country. It's right about in that area. It is a great port city. It's a place of trade. It's a very populous location. So he says, all of God's people here in Macedonia send you their greetings. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So what's the main point I want you to take away today? Yes, parting words are very important. But the main point I want you to take away is if believers in Christ live in harmony and peace, then the God of peace will be with them. How do we live in harmony and peace with each other? There are so many people with so many different ideas within the church that don't amount to a hill of beans within the grand scheme of eternity that separate the church into factions. And we start to infight over different things. You know, the traditional stuff has often been music or pews versus chairs or any number of things you can think of. But nowadays, churches are becoming split over social issues that we once used to never be split over in the past. Social issues about marriage, social issues about the sanctity of life, social issues about any number of other things that have found their way infiltrating the church and causing factions within the body of Christ. But what is Christ's main goal with his body, with his church? Is that they live in peace and unity with each other. Not at all costs. We know this because Paul called people out. But what are we to be unified and at peace around? The central core teachings and values of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> Amen. Are, are we still here? Okay, good. A couple of you are here. Good. So, do you understand what I'm getting at? We think oftentimes to be unified, we have to be unified at all costs. Well, there is still false teaching that creeps into the church that you cannot be unified around, okay? But there are core elements that we must be centered around. And those important things should elevate the conversation, should elevate this status of unity to a place that is truly holy where we live in harmony with each other, where we quit throwing stones at each other. And Paul, after he gets done scolding this church, says, listen, my hope for you is that you would live in unity and peace because that's when the God of peace will dwell among you. But if you're fighting with each other all the time, if you're throwing stones at each other or you're hurling these epithets at each other, then what's going to happen is a breakdown of unity within the body of Christ. Yes, solid, holy teaching must occur on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a foundation for truth. 
Because Jesus is the truth. But anything outside of that becomes problematic. So how does Paul really unpack this parting words he gives them? He says to be joyful and grow in maturity. So when we unpack, what does that mean? I looked at different translations this week. I looked at the core root language of Greek. Many versions of scripture render this word joy or to be joyful as rejoice. It's also written in some of your translations as farewell. I don't know if you read the NIV, uh, the KJV, the NKJV, the RSV, the NRS, there's a bunch of them out there. When you read some of them, it just says, Paul says, farewell. But there's more to the word than just farewell. It's actually be joyful, be rooted in joy. See, Paul had corrected them and all the instructions that he had given them regarding to eradicating sin in the body of Christ, he says, be joyful. Be joyful. Paul wants them to breathe deep. He's saying, listen, I'm disciplining you. I'm speaking words of rebuke, but you should be joyful about it. (laughs) This is what we tell our kids, right? What I'm telling you now, you don't understand. But they are words of life and words of truth meant to bring you joy, not hardship. Do you get it? Yes? How many of you have told your kids, you don't understand why I'm spanking you now, and it hurts me more than it hurts you? And the kids are like, yeah, right. I remember a couple of times putting books in my pants. You ever did that? Do that as a kid? Like, I had a square butt for a while. My mom thought I did. I'm just kidding. I never got spanked by my mom because she loved me. But... Uh, I'm just kidding, it really goes in in the face of the, you know, God disciplines those he loves, like a father disciplines his children. Okay, I'm way off track here. But you get what I'm getting at here is that God, through Paul, is saying, listen, if I didn't care about you, if I didn't love you, or if I didn't want what was best for you, I wouldn't discipline, I wouldn't rebuke you. I'd let you go on doing whatever you wanted to do and getting further and further and further away from God until it ultimately ends in destruction. I don't want that for you. I want you to live in joy of the truth of the words that I'm giving you because they are from God. Do you understand? Amen, sister. (laughs) There's also a word in there called maturity. Grow, be joyful, And grow in maturity. Do you know what this word translated from Greek actually means? Be perfect. (laughs) Be perfect. So be joyful and be perfect. Some of you right now are thinking, there is no way I can be perfect. But that's a lie of the enemy. I want to unpack that for you. So it can also be translated as be complete. Be joyful and be perfect or be complete. See, we are not complete apart from Christ. It's Christ who makes us complete and whole. It is Christ and his perfection that makes us perfect. If you take our Discover North Main class, 
we talk about becoming completely committed followers of Christ. And we unpack this word completely in the first lesson. And here's what that looks like. It's like looking at, um, if you look through a microscope at most smooth surfaces, there are these still jagged, pitted looking edges. If you look through a microscope at the smoothest surface you can find, there's still some rough edges and lumps. I mean, they're not discernible by the touch or by the human eye, but through the microscope you can see that. And so the way that I would describe being complete or whole or perfect is that when we take on Christ through faith and belief, he comes in and he fills in all of those jagged edges. It doesn't mean that the jagged edges aren't there. It's just that he covers that multitude of sin through the new covenant in his blood. That even through a microscopic lens, when anybody looks at our life, they should be able to see Christ. See, being perfect in Christ isn't about doing the right things all the time. And hear me out on that, because some of you are going to take liberty with what I just said and said, Brandon said I can go out and sin. No, that's not what it said. <laughs> it means you're going to stumble and fall from time to time. But when you do, you remember there's a Savior who loves you, who has called you by his name, and in him you are complete and whole. Do you understand that? Okay, so I'm going to move on a little bit more. I love what James says. He kind of unpacks this a little bit too. He's one of the authors of the New, uh, New Testament. Uh, in his letter, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, writes these words. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, James chapter 1, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When troubles come your way, Paul was telling them the troubles that were in the body of Christ at Corinth that shouldn't be there. But he also says, when troubles come your way, when you're going through difficult circumstances, consider it an opportunity for what? Joy. Why? Because James tells us a little bit more here. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed... What's the words he says? You will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. When you come to this place of perfection and completion is when you realize that nothing else in this life matters apart from Christ. So if everything is stripped away from me, if I'm homeless, if I've lost everything, but I still have Christ, I'm perfect and I need nothing. Now, we may not feel that. Our guttural reaction to that may be not so good. But truly, if we have Christ as a priority in our lives, and we have proper perspective based on our faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what hits us, from what side, we are still perfect, needing nothing. The second point that Paul gives us here is to encourage each other and to live in harmony and peace. The word encourage means actually to comfort one another. Did you know that? So when Paul is saying encourage one another, he's saying to comfort one another. 
The idea being to console during times of distress and sorrow. When, you are, when, when somebody points out something in your life that is wrong, you have one of two responses. <laughs> what is the common response people give when somebody says, you know, this isn't good, you need to stop doing this? Oh yeah, mind your own business, right? Who are you to judge? Do you know where that response comes from? Pride. Very good. And pride, I would, I would say, is the root of all sinful behavior. Pride is the root of all sinful behavior. Because it leads to selfishness and all of these ugly things that kind of manifest themselves in our lives. When somebody points out something in our life that isn't quite in alignment with what God's purposes are, we oftentimes get our feathers ruffled enough to where we start to push back. And we push back in ugly ways. It's a natural, sinful human response. But a child of God response is to say, oh my goodness, you're right. I don't know what was going on in my mind. So I'll give you an example of this. So David, in the Old Testament, David was the king, not of kings, but he was the king that was so highly elevated in status in Judaism because it was through him that the line, through his line that the Messiah would come. And there, he was just the hero of, of the Jews. But you know, his story gets ugly. I mean, he's been a king now for how many years and he decides while his troops and commanding officers are going out to keep Israel secure and to make sure that, that, that it's safe in the country, he's gonna stay back this time. Have you ever heard somebody say, I've earned, I've earned this. I, I, I'm staying back. So he does. And usually when we let our guard down, temptations come at a faster pace than they are otherwise would when our guard is up. And so he's, he's out on the palace terrace in Jerusalem and he sees this woman bathing off in the distance on a rooftop. It seems like she's come to this time where she's going through a ritual cleaning to cleanse herself. That's a whole different sermon for a different time. Suffice it to say, he sees her and he's wowed by her. Not just her naked body, but he's like, wow, she's, she, who is that lady? He asks one of his servants. So they tell David who she is and he's like, bring her to me. So they've already said, she is the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers. And he's like, okie dokie, bring her to me. So she's, he's already told she's married. She's brought to him, and what does he do? He sleeps with her. It only takes one sexual encounter for a baby to come onto the scene. She gets pregnant. He's going to cover this up. So he has Uriah brought in from the front lines of battle, and he tries to coerce Uriah to sleep with his wife without telling her why. He even goes so far as to get Uriah drunk. But Uriah won't go home and sleep with Bathsheba. So plan B pops up onto the scene, and what's he do? 
He sends Uriah to the front lines of battle where the fighting is the fiercest. And he tells his commanding officer, make sure that you put in where the fighting's the fiercest. And when you get to the worst part of the battle, have the rest of the troops pull back so it's only Uriah standing there and he'll get taken out. (laughs) David is a man after God's own heart, isn't he? Again, a different story for a different time. We'll come back to that some other time. Uriah dies. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. But then he's confronted by a prophet of God. (laughs) Because God sees all, knows all, and he has a way of disciplining us because he loves us. So Nathan, the prophet of God, gets a hearing with David. And as he's standing in front of David, he doesn't come out and say, you know, you committed adultery with Bathsheba and you basically are an accomplice to the murder of Joab and, uh, or excuse me, Uriah and um, God's not happy with you and he's going to punish you. He doesn't say that. He says, here's the deal, David. Um, God, or excuse me, there's this guy just on down the road a ways I'm ad-libbing a little bit. Look it up for yourself. Who has this lamb. This lamb has become like a pet to his family. He sleeps in the house. He actually sleeps in the bed. He eats from from the table at mealtimes. I mean, this, this lamb is so beloved by this family. And then there's another neighbor on down the road, a wealthy man. And he has livestock galore. He has wealth beyond measure. And he wants to throw a party for some friends of his. And he took this guy's lamb that he truly loved and he sacrificed it, or he, he, he killed it and cooked it up so that he could have this feast with his friends. Well, David becomes incensed. And David says, basically, the guy should be murdered for them. He should be killed. But he says, he should have to pay this, he should have to do that. And what does Nathan say? The famous, one, some of the most famous words of Scripture. You are the man. This is the point I'm getting at with this one here. Is when you're confronted with wrongdoing, you have one of two ways to respond. You can say, oh yeah, it's none of your business. David was the king of the whole territory at that point. Nathan confronted him. With this story saying, you are the man, David could have said, oh yeah, you're next. But what does he do? He weeps. He's broken. Not just because he's called out for what he had done wrong, but because he truly had been wrestling, I think, with the sin that he had committed. It was miserable. But he didn't know how to confess it until he was confronted and called out for it. And he's like, yes, I did that. Do you know where you could truly hear the heart of repentance? When David's confronted by Nathan, if you turn to Psalm 51. It's his psalm of repentance. And you can obviously hear the pain and the sorrow and the sadness of what he has done to bring shame to God and Bathsheba and Uriah and the kingdom of Israel. 
Is he saying, Lord, create within me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Don't, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Oh, Lord, forgive me. When we call people out, we do it with words of truth. But when we are called out, we should remember the word repent is the key word to our survival in the kingdom of God. Pride will be your downfall. Repentance will escalate you to the throne room of grace. Lastly, We are told to greet each other with a holy kiss or a sacred kiss. This is when I joked around a little bit this morning with several of you before service. I'm like, we're talking about holy kisses today. So suffice it to say, a holy kiss, when, when Paul says greet each other with a holy kiss, it's akin to somebody coming up and shaking a hand or giving a hug. Okay. In, in Middle Eastern countries and in European countries today, they still greet each other. Ah, it's so good to see you. And they go, mwah, mwah, mwah. You see that before? So it's, it's still a greeting that, that continues. But in Paul's day, and even, well, I don't know today so much, but in Paul's day, this was not a sexual thing. Okay, it was not practiced by people of the opposite sex who were not your spouse. Greet each other with a holy kiss. It is hard. Now, I want you to understand this. It is hard to greet somebody in a loving way when you have something against them, isn't it? Live at peace and harmony with each other. Hey, and don't just hold it there. Don't just, when you greet one another, and he says you should greet one another, greet each other with a sign of love and respect. Give each honor Give each other the honor and the dignity due them as a person who is created in the image of God. Don't snub your nose at them. Don't avoid them in the marketplace. You know you do that. You're walking with your low cart and you're like, oh, shoot, that's so-and-so. And you go the other way, right? People see me coming. I've seen them duck out before. Like, oh, here comes Brandon. It's not a let's go, Brandon. It's get away from, or go away from Brandon or something like that. But you know what I'm talking about, right? See, this is Paul's way of saying don't avoid each other, even those you have differences with. Greet each other with a holy kiss. See, I always go back to this. If you view life through the lens of heaven, you'll see things a lot differently. I would like to say I do this perfectly all the time, but I don't. When you view life through the lens of the kingdom of God, when you view life through the lens of heaven, ask yourself these questions. Will I be avoiding people in heaven? Will you be ducking out behind a gold pillar to avoid this person walking down the street? No, you won't. Because in, we are told we, we will not only know, but we... Uh, we we are not only fully known by God, but we will fully know then. See, this is the thing. Transparency is completely what heaven is about. There is nothing hidden in heaven. Everything is exposed. <laughs> That's a sobering thought, isn't it? 
To know the thoughts of another and for them to know your thoughts? There are no secrets in heaven. Things are revealed. See, we live now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we live and we see through a glass dimly or darkly. But he says when we cross that threshold, when we're there, when we see him face to face, we will know as we are fully known. If we begin, and I'm, I'm going to challenge you this, we have to begin to live life as citizens of God's kingdom. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, listening online, sitting in this arena, if you are a believer in Christ, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, you need to start acting like it. And what that means is you don't talk about people behind their backs. You don't come out with your fists up like this. You don't arrogantly walk around thinking you're better than somebody else. You don't lie or cheat or steal. You don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. Sorry, that's what I was raised with. But you know what I mean. You're gonna live life in light of heaven. You're gonna treat each other's if you're going to treat each other as if you're going to live with them for eternity. Do you hear me? You might have somebody in this space right now that you are at odds with. If they're a believer in Christ and so are you, there's a couple things that need to happen. You need to make amends and reconcile with them because you're going to be living a long time with them in a place called heaven. And if you don't make up here, you're definitely going to have to make up there. When you say, well, fine, I'll just wait till then. Actually, I wouldn't wait till then because that, you, you, here's the thing is you're like, oh, shoot, you're in the, I'm in a different place than they are. And it may not the place, sorry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I thought they were going to be here. You're in hell. Oh, no. Sorry, that's really bad. I just peed myself a little thinking about that. <laughs> so, and you're welcome. Uh, all right, I just want to make sure you're still with me. I've probably offended half of you and you won't be back next week, so let me give you my parting words. <laughs> I made, yeah, it's, it just happens. All right, come back to me. Come back. We're going to close it. We're going to wrap this up. I'm going to call our worship team forward and get them prepared to lead us, lead us out. But I want you to hear this. Um, I was looking this up too, as I was unpacking, saying, what were some people's last words? There's a guy by the name of Buddha. You see him, he got a little fat belly, he's usually sitting cross-legged, and a lot of people like to rub his belly for good luck. Well, that's demonic, don't do that. But, um, you know, Buddha was a, a man who actually lived in, uh, uh, don't quote me on this, five, 600 AD, but even a long time ago. And he became this guru. He broke away from Hinduism and inadvertently started his own religion, which we call Buddhism. And this ideology or this idea of Buddhism is that you can attain this thing called nirvana, and it's not a band where the lead singer committed suicide. Nirvana is a, is a thing that was well advanced before that guy came on the scene. And nirvana is this place where you become so enlightened that you are not bound by the cares of this world, and you achieve this status, what they call nirvana, 
where you blend into this eternal reality called Brahman. It's just, we'll do a world religions class someday and we'll unpack that. But it's where you blend into the eternal. And the eternal is not God per se like we think of him because everything in Hinduism and also in Buddhism is God. Okay? This is why they have reincarnation. You get so many tries at life uh, until you finally achieve nirvana. Right? You might come back as a dog next because you really ruined this life, and so you're going to come back as a dog or a flea or something. But eventually, you'll continue to grow to the status of, of enlightenment to where you will achieve and blend into this eternal reality. Well, we think that's not true because we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that Jesus, a part of the Godhead, is separate and is a separate reality apart from his created order. That he is not the creation, but rather the creator. And that we worship him as such. Okay? But Buddha's last words, it is said by his disciples, and they're written down in a holy book somewhere. His words, there were three of them. Survive, or excuse me, strive without ceasing. Now that's great if you're in pop psychology and the power of positive thinking and all of that. Strive without ceasing. But there are three other words by a man named Jesus who were his last that I think are more fitting for us today. And they're, it is finished. Now, Jesus rose from the grave and gave us a great commission But his last words as a living human being before he was resurrected are, it is finished. (laughs) What's finished? What is finished is that God dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. Read the whole book of Hebrews. That's what this is about. Through Jesus Christ, we have an advocate to the Father. We have this opportunity to step into this throne room called grace with boldness, with confidence. When Jesus did what he did and breathed his last words, it is finished. He was saying to the Father, I did what you called me to accomplish. And though it was hard and painful, I succeeded. And now there's salvation for anyone who would receive it. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going to live in peace and harmony with each other. But more importantly, you're going to have the Prince of Peace living in you. Because without that, nothing else matters. Paul's parting words to the church at Corinth pale in comparisons to Jesus' parting words to us and to his Father. Do you receive them today? I hope you do. I hope before you step out of this place, if you've been teetering or toying around with this idea, I don't know if God's real. I don't know if he is or not. It takes a step of faith in his direction. And I promise you, If you're teetering on belief versus unbelief right now, step into it. 
Step into it. What do you have to lose? If you're a believer in Christ and you're struggling with a relationship that needs to be reconciled because of your pride, or maybe it's because of the pride of the other person. Remember our series last month? As much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. I don't know where you are today, but I know that if you leave this place without being transformed, or at least without having some sense of transformation in your life because of the Holy Spirit's movement on you, you'll regret it. As I always say, the altar to my right, when you come to this space and place, is a place where you're saying to somebody who is a prayer warrior in this space, I need prayer, would you come pray with me? I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to deal with this situation. I don't know how to make this decision, and I need help. And somebody will come and pray with you. If you want to pray alone, and you don't want to be messed with, you come to my left, your right. You could pray in your pew, but there's, and I say this every week, it's something about stepping out. See, when Jesus did miracles, he always had those people act out their faith in the miracle that had just been proclaimed over them. Get, pick up your mat and walk. It'll be the best step of your life. Heavenly Father, in this place, as we always do, we ask you to fill the presence and the atmosphere of this space with your Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. I pray your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon lives that need to know you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would unpack and bring healing to lives who are suffering infirmities and ailments of the body in this space and in this place. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a work on the hearts and the lives of the people in this place to bring transformation that no other thing can. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.